from Canada, Arcade Fire there, Electric Blue. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Joined by Matthew Roberts from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. Uh, You've critiqued the political parties in the lead up to the Victorian election. What can you tell us? We certainly have. This is a, a, a story, James, of sex workers turning the tables and rating and ranking all of our political parties right here in Victoria. Who scores well? No surprises for guessing that Fiona Patton's Reason Party comes out on top. Uh, the Labor government did also very well, um, getting an excellent score, as did the Animal Justice Party and Liberal Democrats. I mean, Fiona Patton was the champion behind the Sex Work Decriminalisation Act here in Victoria, so no surprises there. Obviously, the government picked that up. That's great. But Animal Justice and Sex Work, that's interesting. Tell us more. Yeah, it's a really good point because... One of, our, um, one of the things that we talk about is that sex workers' rights are human rights. And so what we find is that this isn't just a guide or a discussion for sex workers. It's for everybody who cares about human rights and justice. And so the Animal Justice Party, which focuses on animal rights, came out being pretty progressive and good for sex workers as well. Tell us about the Greens. They have a checkered past with sex workers. Yeah, so the Greens did well. Um, we we did mark them down a little bit for some of their previous conduct. Um, the, in the past, they've pre-selected some sort of anti-sex work candidates. Um, but we we gave the Greens a very good rating overall. They did vote for to decriminalise sex work. But some of that really anti-sex work baggage from the past has to be acknowledged. And I think they're pretty aware of that, especially in a seat like Richmond. I mean, there were lots of reasons why Dick Wynne won that seat. But uh, the candidate was anti-sex work. That was the perception. And that created a permission pathway for some people who I think were going, well, the Greens are good on social justice to vote Labor. Yeah. I mean, these things can make a difference. And it may have this, the sex work issue in Richmond last election four years ago may have actually made a difference to the final outcome. And we, some of the seats we are going to see a close contest between Labor and the Greens, as you say. So what are some of those seats where you think sex work is an issue? Probably uh, the number one lower house seat would be Richmond, uh, not Richmond, Ringwood, sorry, out in the eastern suburbs there. Um, I think that's going to be a really important one and it could be quite close for um, between Labor and Liberal as well. So the Labor candidate's quite progressive on, on sex work for Ringwood. Yeah, so in that particular um, seat, we've got a quite a strong Labor candidate who's pro-sex work, and the Liberal candidate is, uh, I'll just say, anti-sex work. So let's focus on the Liberal opposition for a moment. Uh, how'd you rate them? We, well, first of all, I just want to say, James, we were actually as objective as possible and as fair to all the parties. We looked at publicly available voting records. We gave the Liberals, in the end, a poor score. Uh, they did not vote to decriminalise sex work. But in the end, the vote was 24 yes to 10 no um, in the upper house. But the Liberal Party um, didn't really back sex workers, and there's not a lot of positive things that we could say at this point. They did, however, vote for the consent reform bill that made stealthing and the non-payment of sexual services classified as a sexual assault. So that's a, that's a win for sex workers on the... Uh, consent front. I guess, you know, um, when you're looking at your methodology and uh, ranking political parties, obviously their behaviour about sex work, their attitudes, you know, um, 
must come into play. Tell us a little bit more about your methodology. Yeah, that's a really important um, question because, first of all, we did not include any private conversations or personal opinions that we have. We only focus on the public record. So the speeches in the parliament when the sex work decriminalisation bill was being debated, we had some brilliant speeches, Samantha Ratnam, some Labor people, of course Fiona and David Limbrick, but we also had some shockers. And so we did take into consideration if a party put up um, speakers who said some horrible things about sex work, that was certainly a factor in the final decision. So you really assess political parties' narratives on sex work? The the narratives and the, the public rhetoric were considered because they matter. Words count. When somebody set link sex work to HIV, public health threats or the welfare of children, fear-mongering essentially, this all matters. And so we do pay attention to it and we do include it. Because that stigmatising does have an impact on the health and safety of sex workers. Uh, So obviously that's a huge thing for an organisation like yours, which is a sex work advocacy organisation to consider. Yeah, and you know, um, Sex Work Law Reform Victoria is an unfunded organisation um, in Victoria. So we actually have the freedom to have these discussions openly and we're not worried about any, any particular party. So yes, we do recognise that stigmatising language matters. It does impact sex workers. It can make sex work safe or less safe. And we're going to call that out. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it, being an advocacy organisation? Because governments hate to fund them. But at the same time, that hesitancy and that reluctance to fund you gives you great credibility when you're assessing political parties before elections because, you know, you haven't been bought. We most certainly haven't haven't been bought. Um, As I said, we're unfunded. But, James, I think my message to everybody, both in politics and outside, is that we can all be a potential solution for sex workers' rights. All the political parties can potentially step up and deliver. This particular term of parliament in the last four years has been brilliant for sex workers. We've decriminalised sex work and had a range of other reforms. And I'm hoping that we can continue that success into the future. I mean, it's good that you've kind of assessed their attitude because you're kind of putting them on notice before the campaign proper begins here in Victoria for the election. You know, you're kind of saying, hey, we know what you like. We've ranked you. We've made this publicly available. um, And we hope you keep yourself nice during the campaign. Is that kind of like the tacit kind of thing you're saying? I guess so. Yes, yes, and and also, um, it, we've you know we've been very fair to people. We relied on the on publicly available sources, and our message is: talk to sex workers, talk to us, keep the dialogue open. It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. People can always reassess their views and and their positions. Everybody can be a part of the solution. We should all be comfortable doing that. And of course, you know, it's not just about the state election, it's about, you know, um, I guess political parties' attitudes as the planning process progresses for that second tract of sex work law reform, which has been passed, but but which kicks in in December next year. That's right. So we've got the election coming up in late November. December of next year is when the, the significant council planning changes kick in for sex workers. And that'll obviously be after the election. And so b- between now and next year, we really want all parties to remember that these reforms are not a threat to the community, to children or to anyone else. They are about the health and safety of sex workers and everyone wins. 
So how are political parties reacting to your to your scorecard? Have they seen it yet? Well, we don't know yet because this is hot off the press. It just went live minutes ago. Lovely. So they're probably clamouring on, on, onto your website now to have a look at it. Um, how can they access it? How can the public access it? Go straight to sexworklawreformvictoria.org.au and we're on Twitter and Facebook under at SWLRV. Breaking news here. What else can you tell us about your findings? Oh, two of the surprises. We found that the Shooters, uh, Fishers and Farmers Party did surprisingly well. Do tell. Well, the um, the representative for that party ended up voting um, for, se- for the decriminalisation of sex work and for the consent bill. And overall, it was a sort of, I guess, a, a higher performance than you might have expected of a party that focuses on gun rights. Victoria, of course, has a lot of political parties in its upper house. Uh, tell us about some of the others and how they've performed on sex work. Yeah, so one one of the MPs described the upper house as a licorice of all sorts mixed bag of parties, and it's quite a large and diverse crossbench. It's the crossbench has done quite well for sex workers. We've got um, the Reason Party, Animal Justice, the Liberal Democrats, really strong for sex workers as well. Um, the one party that I, that I that came out last was the Democratic Labor Party. Yep. Yep. And it sounds like the Liberals were near the bottom of the list too, the Liberal National Parties. Yeah, the Liberal and National Parties, which we um, looked at separately, as I said, based on their voting record and, and their rhetoric, we couldn't justify giving it a high score. It came out as poor. And we're hoping that that'll change into next year. Um, James, some of those speeches were just shockers, I have to say, in, in, when the dec- in the upper house, you know, and complete denial about the existence of sex workers and the demonisation of them as well, you know. I mean, when I say denial, I imagine some of the National Party MPs were pretending that sex work didn't happen in their electorates. And that they thought that it never would happen or that they could stop it, you know. Sex work is in every electorate. It's in every suburb. It's happening in residential areas right now in the thousands. This is the reality. And... Sex workers' rights is saying let's recognise that reality and introduce reforms that best protect the people who are already doing that work. So it sounds like the Nationals were worse than the Liberals. They were probably, I'd say, tied. Tied? Yep, yep. So no kind of suave, suburban-like influences with the Libs if they're tied with the Nats. that's, That's pretty disappointing, isn't it? Well, I mean, on this, on this particular issue, that, that, that were, it was the same and they got the same poor um, rating here. Um, again, I won't comment on behind-the-scenes conversations. We did have some great positive conversations with individuals, but those, those were private and so we won't talk about those. We, we really focus on the voting record and from Hansard. And Hansard comments. Yes, because all of those speeches, all of that rhetoric, all of that stigmatising language, it's enshrined forever in Hansard. What about what they said in the media? Did you did you assess that? We did pay attention to that. There wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot of discussion in the media uh, from MPs or parties about this. They largely kept quiet, and so that was a factor. Fiona Patton, for example, spoke a lot um, frequently in the media. 
but it was really what they said on the record in Parliament that I think counts more. Matthew Roberts, always great to chat. If people want to check out Sex Work Law Reform, Victoria's findings and critiques of Victoria's political parties in the lead up to the election, where can they go again? Sexworklawreformvictoria.org.au. That's where you'll see sex workers rating our politicians. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's Rookie.
kids there. Jailbird, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Joined by Sean Dante, all about how long is a piece of string, uh, which will be showing soon at Theatre Works at 67 Inkerman Street. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you going? <laughs> it's great to have you on board. Oh, Tell us you. all about the production. Yeah. Um, so how long is a piece of string... Uh, is part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival. Um, it's directed by Kia, and it has four performance divisions, um, me, Poppy, Ari, Aaron, and Louie. Um, pretty much what we're doing is we're trying to celebrate theatre and theatricality, um, but it doesn't want to be defined by the presuppositions of its medium. Um, we want to comment upon you know, the title itself, like how long is a piece of string? Um, and we are looking at the idea of distance um, as a literal and a figurative idea. So using this uh, location of the theatre as a crux, um, we want to explore different themes that play around with this mode of questioning. Yeah, It sounds really trippy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's pretty much what we want to do. Uh, Kia is from um, Europe, from uh, Scotland. So he has a lot of a different type of theatre background than Australians, um, and he really wants to get it more uh, interactive elements with the audience. So that's one of the focuses we really want to engage with. So tell us about your role. What do you do on stage? Yeah, so um, I am a performance-based artist. Um, I live in Nam, um, and pretty much what I'm doing is I have a fine arts background, um, and I work in sound and performance. So what I'm doing is I'm bringing more of those elements into the play, not just uh, elements of theatre and acting, but trying to like bring, I guess, deeper philosophical social meanings um, into uh, the production. So, I mean, I have a lot of a queer theory-based background. Um, I studied... Uh, a lot of queer theory. Most of it was by Jack Halberstam, but um, like one of the things we were looking at last week was Susan Sontag's uh, Sontag's uh, Notes on Camp, um, which I absolutely love. Highly recommend. I think it's it's free online. So and it's like a I reckon about a half an hour read. Um, I was going to ask you about camp because yeah. I find that absolutely fascinating, and yeah. that's part of your practice as yeah. is othering. Uh, and basically, you're really into how camp and othering removes the observer from normative ideologies and expectations, and that kind of, to me, kind of links in with how long is a piece of string. Yeah. Um, tell us all about that. Yeah. So I guess going back to Susan Sontang's uh, notes on camp, the idea of camp is turning um, an object or an artifice into, I guess, a performative element. Um, she does it really well where she explains, like, this isn't just, like, a lamp. This is a, a lamp. So it gets, like, more theatrical and adds campy elements to it. Um, and, you know, we're limited with um, a budget, so we're trying to only use string. Um, as props on stage, but it's like, what can we do with string? How can we remove it from the, I guess, the, the presupposition that it's going to be used for these certain elements and have fun with it? And in terms of like camping the production, um, we're just like looking at removing, uh, I guess, the basic, um, uh, I guess, the expectation of what you're expecting on stage. We want to have. Uh, surprises and we want 
the audience to kind of like expect the unexpected, which I think camp is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, our community was originally defined as camp before yep. gay, before queer, before LGBTIQA+, all came along. So that kind of raises the issue for me about, you know, distance being kind of, you know, a part of time as mm. well. Time and distance. Yeah, definitely. Um I mean, time and distance, they're so related. Um, And in regards to the production, as I said, we're looking at it at a literal sense, but also, I guess, a figurative sense as well. Um, You know, the distance between two bodies, um, the distance between our body and, I guess, um, you know, our emotions and how they can expand over time and grow. Um, So we're really looking at those types of elements Um, And with time as well, like we transform what you expect at the beginning of the performance is going to radically change by the end of it. Much like when you, um, you know, look into, I mean, for me, like queer theory, um, you know, my basic, I guess, uh, expectation or assumption of what queer theory was, you know, was completely dismantled by like going into it and what queer meant. Like it just, it totally... Um, radicalizes what these meanings have to them and transforms it into something quite incredible, in my opinion. So after studying queer theory, what does queer mean? <laughs> I guess it's so it's so interesting. I have these kind of like debates and topics with so many people because queer is... Um, I've done a lot of research in, I guess, what does queer mean and... You know, is queer safe anymore? Like, are these queer spaces really queer anymore? Um, So really the idea of queer is now they're branching it into the LGBT um, and then they're calling this, like, kind of new space the queerer queers. So anyone outside of those areas, like, um, you know, non-binary people, sex workers, um, I guess polyamorous people, like it can go, the list can go on and on. Those can be who can be discriminated or marginalized within the queer community itself. Cause we, you know, we are seeing homonormativity kind of, um, expanding within heteronormativity. And now I guess capitalizing on that and you're kind of seeing a repetition of like people being marginalized again. So queer in my regards means anything that is, I guess, against the normativity of heteronormativity, really. And that's so interesting because my first exposure to the word queer in the activist sense Mm. and really in the community sense was in 1990 when uh, a gay Anglican priest I knew who was part of a group I was involved with at Thorn Harbour Health, as it well is now, but Mm. it was VAC then, said in the hushed tone, and Queer Nation's coming to Melbourne. And Queer Nation were a group that would go into hetero environments like bars, Mm. you know, as a queer group, and their activism was about just having a queer presence and visibility in those heteronormative spaces. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I still also get really surprised when I tell people, you know, I'm queer, and, like, my mum, when I started first using the term queer... I mean, I'm, you know, I was born in 1993, my mum's born in the 60s, so um, I didn't have that kind of, um, like, derogatory slang towards the the terminology. And so when I started calling it to my mum, my mum was, like, taking it to, like, huge offence. Like, she's like, why would you, like, demoralise yourself like that? 
And so and I think that's an also a really good opportunity to be like, you know, educate my mum, you know, who comes from, I guess, um, a low socioeconomic background and like start having these discussions about where queerness has started, where it's gone and what it means now too. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about your colleagues on stage. Yeah. So, uh, so Kia is the director. Um, so we're working with Kia to kind of like explore ideas um, improvise and then we have Poppy and Erin who are from uh, South Australia um, they've been here for a while though um, and they've got an acting background and we also have Louis um, and Louis is I'm pretty sure Louis is from Victoria um, and uh, so we're all working together they've got an acting background too um, so I'm the only one with a performance based background um, Kia studied university I think uh, arts and philosophy um, and we're all just kind of bringing in new ideas, like ideas of queerness, um, transness, um, I guess even ideas of travel and cause, cause kids obviously traveled internationally distance is a time of like growth and evolution. Um, and I guess what the expectation of what we want to see on stage versus the, what we want to present for people to, um, learn from. Because our perceptions of distance have really changed, haven't mm. they? With the internet, but also with the pandemic as well. Yeah. You know, like how we relate to distance is quite different now to what it was even a few years ago. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's still a lot of hesitation to go back into those realms of becoming more intimate with one another. I mean, when I started, you know, my performance work is very solo-based. I'm usually performing on stage in front of people, um, kind of exposing my body. But it was really interesting, like, working in a collaboration um, with these people. Um, it's such an intimate environment. Um, it's obviously a really safe space, but I'm still, like, kind of recovering over the distance of, like, how close we work together. Um and it's been actually really nice and refreshing. Like it's made me kind of like, I, you know, like I do believe we have to learn and unlearn so many things. And I think we've like learned a lot of um, negative ways or perhaps um, bad ways of living during, you know, lockdown that we have hesitations about doing things with other people, you know, now that COVID is kind of settling down. But I mean, obviously there's still cases, so we still have to be careful in that regards. But um, yeah, working with my colleagues has really opened my eyes up and it's just really nice to have, uh, different, I guess, cause we're all having these open conversations about what we're reading, what we're exploring. Um, I guess what distance means to us and we're all bringing in things, new things every week and seeing everyone's kind of view perception and ideologies is this like really refreshing and we all kind of just bounce off each other from that. It sounds really spontaneous. Yeah. <laughs> it's very like, it's very like, uh, yeah, we're very much improv based. We have, you know, a core element of where we're going and what we're doing and how we're writing. Um, but the main thing is we just really want to have fun um, and we want excitement and we want to share that with uh, you know, with the visitors and the, the viewers and, you know, also they're not even viewers, they're going to be part of the performance too. Like that's the whole point. Like everyone, it's kind of like um, dismantling and queering the audience as well. It's bringing them into a new state of experience. 
Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> that is really fun for the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what we want. We want, um, obviously, a really fun... But it's also kind of, like, a bit scary because, um, you know, we, we go to comedy shows that, like, the first thing you don't want happen is to be heckled. So, <laughs> so we're trying to have these good conversations about, okay, how do we make sure that the audience feels safe and how do we, you know, engage with them in a manner that gets them feeling excited and gets them to understand that they're being involved with the production, that, you know, they're part of this version of camping, of, you know, othering within the theatre world. It is a bit scary, isn't it? Because every <laughs> performance sounds like it's going to be potentially quite different to the next because you've got a different audience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But how exciting is a performer? That's going to really keep you on your toes yeah. and going to make you guys dig deep. Yeah, I mean, especially as a performance artist, um, like I'm learning, I have my own ways of getting into my performer mode in terms of like, I kind of like, you know, go into this, I guess, like drag aesthetic of like turning into a different person and like I, you know, cover myself in like makeup and like um, slime and like fake blood and stuff and I'm no longer Sean, I'm no longer me, I'm this alternative being and there's a kind of empowerment with that. But, you know, exploring these ways with these other people too, it's just really nice to be like, okay, I have to engage with these people as Sean. I'm not this alter ego anymore. I'm, you know, trying to blur those two, you know, it's like the distance, right? Like it's blurring those lines together. Are you going to be, when you're watching this show, are you going to be watching me as a performer or, you know, me as me on stage? And I think that's really important. Sounds heaps of fun. <laughs> Give us the details for how long is a piece of string. Yeah. So how long is a piece of string? Uh, let me just get these details up. Is from the 18th to the 22nd. Um, it's at TheatreWorks in St Kilda. Um, yeah, and you can buy your tickets online at TheatreWorks or the Fringe Festival. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram on Sean Dante, uh, Sean.Dante, or you can follow um, for live updates at Live witness, either of those. <laughs> it's been great chatting, Sean. Yeah, Thank you so, so much. much for joining me in the studio here at 3CR. Thank you so much. And here are the white stripes.
Johnny Raitt there. Let's keep it between us. Joined by Sophie Muckett and Catherine Morville, two of the actors in Ignis, which is showing soon at Turak Manor as part of Melbourne Fringe. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Um, so it is a immersive theatre show, which is happening at Turak Manor, which is like a little um, boutique hotel. And it's happening across, is there four rooms that we've hired out? Four or five rooms. And the audience will sort of walk through each room and watch the scenes play out like that. So it's incredibly um, intimate. Um, and there's only a 12-person capacity per um, show. show. Yep. So, yeah. Sophie, tell us about your role in the production. Mm. About my role? Well, uh, so I'm actually acting as a, um, a producer for the show as well as uh, one of the actors. Um, so my role, my character's name is Rachel um, and she's a, she's a nurse. She's a professional nurse working in a private hospital. Um, and she has, I don't want to give away too much other than she has a couple of, uh, marital, um, issues. Um, and, uh, yeah, she, she, um, she's just sort of finding a way to, uh, explore her sexuality, Mm. I guess. Yeah. So sex is a theme that really, Mm. you know, um, is, is in this production. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I play Samantha. Um, and she's probably out of everyone in the cast, I would say. She's like the most mysterious character. There's not a lot of backstory about her. Her scenes sort of don't reveal too much about her, but she's essentially a sex worker. Um, and yeah, it was really interesting just kind of exploring. I could do a lot with the character because I don't know too much about her. So there was a lot that I could kind of create through that. Yeah. So tell us about the exploration of the bushfires in Ignis as well, because there's a climate change theme happening. Yeah. I think it's interesting, like, doing the play because, yeah, the bushfires is basically the kind of, um, I guess, backdrop of the entire play. Like, it's mentioned in every scene and people talk about in the play, like, how there's smoke everywhere and, like, asthmatics are struggling to breathe. And it's just so relatable because we all remember the Black Summer fires a couple of years ago and, like, we remember people were wearing masks and asthmatics were really struggling to breathe because of that and it was entering into the city and the same thing happens in the play. It sort of, it almost acts as um, a bit of, like, a pressure pot as well, I think, for all of the the scenes and for all of the relationships it kind of I mean you could look at it as a bit of a metaphor in that way um as as Kat said it's sort of it's just sitting there you know as a um sort of bubbling underneath the surface of what all of these relationships and and characters are experiencing Mm. um so it just adds another level to uh to yeah to the story so what's it like for you guys acting in this production it sounds really intense yeah, it's like it's it's intense, but it's also like it's my favorite type of theater because I really I really like realistic theater. Like it's my favorite type. So it's nice knowing that the audience is small and that they're kind of there with us as well and we can really kind of act very intimately with our scene partners. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So um what are rehearsals like? They're, yeah, they're great. They're they're really fun. We, the process we use is our, our director, Bronwyn, uses method acting. Um, so when we rehearse, what we'll do is we'll be with our scene partner and we'll read through the scene with them and then we'll get up and just improvise the scene and stuff will kind of start coming in 
and then slowly we'll become getting off script from um, doing improvisation all the time and then all of the stuff that we learned in improvisation will just kind of go into the work. Yeah, because Bronwyn's really character-centred with her directing. Mm. 100%, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. She, we use a lot of um, sensory techniques as well, which, um, again, kind of adds another layer to the performances. It just creates this incredibly um, sort of realistic um performance from the actors um because you're kind of you're tapping into those those senses and that's kind of that's sort of the preparation preparation that you do at home that's a lot of your homework is to to be really connected obviously with your body and to your environment and to um to use that and to use kind of your your emotional states um in the scene so you're not having to kind of to force anything or to pretend you know to to feel anything it's it sounds like an Olympic sport. <laughs> it, is, it feels like that at the end yeah, of the day. Kind of is. <laughs> How do you train yourself at home? Like it sounds like, you know, you, just, you can't just like, you know, tune out after rehearsal. It sounds mm. like you've really got to do this prep to get to rehearsal. Yeah, mm-hmm. you do. It's like a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the prep stuff is like you really, if you really want to kind of, kind of completely involve yourself with the character, it's like daily work essentially that you have to do um, and a lot of private work and, um, yeah finding out things about your character. Wow. Yeah. So um, it sounds like your you're kind of like, you know, interpretations of the characters must really change the more you get into these roles and the more you do this sensory preparation. You guys mm. must be learning a lot about mm. kind of like your relationship with your own body and how you interpret the characters as a result of that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's and each character obviously is is completely different you know your your process of approaching them um will be different from from one to the next it's not always exactly the same but the idea obviously with the the method and that kind of technique of sensory is that you just you always have that there to use um and to uh, to use in in a way that works for you but it means that you are completely connected with with your body as i say with your your senses and your environment um and you you know you can feel safe in in that knowledge i mean sometimes obviously depending on how how deep you kind of want to go with a character it does take some sort of work and you have to find tools of being able to to come out of that state but um you know as long as you have kind of an incredibly supportive and um trained kind of director in that Mm. approach Mm -hmm. then i mean it's just the most incredible experience it's just so visceral um, and as an actor, that's kind of that's you know that's what I I look for when I mm. um, take on a role. I want to have that fully immersed experience, um, but know that I can come out of it at the end safely. I mean, when when you talk about the sensory kind of you know work and the bushfire scene that mm. you know is basically you know the environment that this play is set within, you know, within a a, a punishing summer. Um, you know, it's that is very sensory living in that intensely hot, mm. pressurized environment. Wow. Mm. Yeah, and that really can affect a character. Like, um, yeah, if you're working with like sensory stuff with like the smell of the fires and the and feeling the heat and everything, that can fully change how you're acting, um, and can change how the character's feeling and what you do in the scene. Mm. So, have you ever used this sensory method before in other roles? 
I, uh, a little bit, like not to this extent because I've never, there's not many directors really that use method teaching. Um, Bronwyn's one of those rare people that does and she does it so well. Um, but I've used it when I was at acting school. This is kind of where I learned it all. So I've used it a lot that way. Yeah, wow. And um, tell us about some of the other people involved in the production. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have we have quite a large cast. So there's actually 11 um, of us all together. Um, and the way that the, the play unfolds, uh, I think as Kat mentioned earlier, there's sort of the two-hander scenes um, and one character will leave one scene and then move into the next scene and then begin kind of a new scene or a new relationship in another room and then it sort of has this full full circle where we come back around to meeting the very first character in the first mm. scene. Um and uh, the majority of the actors are all ensemble members with the Anthropocene Play Company. Um, and we have a couple of uh, additions um, of actors who we sort of have, we know of their work and who we've worked with in the past. Um, again, who are kind of experienced in the method technique as well. Um, and they're just such a, an incredible bunch of people. Everyone is 110% committed and, um, yeah, just kind of really ready to to bring their game and um, it's just, it's a really wonderful environment to, to work with as an actor and also as a producer, you know, it's, it's been great. <laughs> so give us those details so people can rock along and see Ignis at Turag Manor. You, you'll be better at that. Okay, so, um, so Ignis is showing at the Turag Manor Hotel. Um, we open on the 10th of October. And it runs through until the 23rd of October. Um, We are currently sold out, which is incredible. However, we are looking to um, potentially add another date. Um, So we'll just get everyone to kind of keep your eyes peeled on our socials, on our website um, to, yeah, to kind of have a look at that because it's it's, um, been selling out so fast. Um, And we also have um, a fundraising page through the Australian Cultural Fund, um, which means that, you know, people who are not able to make the show can uh, make a 100% tax deductible donation towards the show, which is purely just about um, allowing us to to pay our cast and crew, um, you know, as as much as we can. I mean, that's kind of the, the priority really is to ensure that our creatives are paid for Absolutely. their work. Especially with such an emotionally intense mm, role and play like yeah. this, you want to be paid it's properly. It's no mean yeah. feat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, Sophie and Kat from Ignis, two wonderful actors. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio today and best of luck with the production. It sounds truly wondrous. Thank, Thank you, you so for much, having James. us. Thank you.
Martha and the Vandellas there. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.